Hello everyone and welcome to the 34th episode of the CMS Pensions Lawcast. In this episode we're looking at small schemes and we're trying to fight the good fight and deal with all that regulatory burden for them. Uh, we're looking at the issues facing small schemes uh, when they have to go through scheme administration and governance and we're also going to look at some of the, the existing burden and, and what's coming what's coming in the future. We're delighted today to be joined by Jonathan Reynolds, professional trustee with Capital Cranfield. Capital Cranfield, as you all know, is a leading professional trusteeship and governance firm with 46 professional trustees and over 300 pension scheme clients. Jonathan Reynolds himself has over 25 years experience in the pension industry and Jonathan is going to be here to answer our questions uh, later on about what to do in practice. How can you really help trustees get through this? But to start us off and set the scene, Katie's going to give you a quick overview of the regulatory burden that small schemes face. Uh, and we're making clear this is the sort of extra stuff. This is more than just their core duty to provide benefits. This is everything else that goes on around there. All of that governance that you've been reading about lately and that we've done some law casts on over the last few weeks. A lot of this will be familiar, of course, and much of it's handled by advisors and other third parties. But the core burden is still on the trustees, even where they've outsourced to make sure they're monitoring what's going on and that everything's being done in members' best interest. So over to Katie now. Thank you, Jay. I'll begin by defining what we mean by small scheme before moving on to the different areas of regulation, including governance and investment reporting requirements. So what do we mean by a small scheme? For our purposes today, we're thinking about small schemes, meaning those with under £250 million in assets. This talk is also specifically focused on schemes that have no resource of scheme secretarial services, which can have a significant impact on a scheme's ability to fulfil its various obligations, as I'll now go on to explore. So starting off with the governance requirements. Small schemes are not exempt by virtue of their size from fulfilling their governance requirements in line with the different applicable regulations. Firstly, under the Pensions Act 2004, Section 249A, trustees and managers of occupational pension schemes must establish and operate an effective system of governance, including internal controls. This system of governance must be proportionate to the size, nature, scale and complexity of the scheme's activities, which is useful for a smaller scheme with fewer members and likely smaller assets on which to draw. So what actions do they have to take? Well, one of the crucial elements of a scheme governance is, of course, its board of trustees. And there are a number of requirements that schemes have to meet in relation to their governing board. Firstly, a chair of trustees must be appointed within a specific timescale, particularly when a chair ceases to hold office. In that event, the trustees must appoint a replacement as quickly as possible and within three months. This can be more difficult for smaller schemes who have less of a pool of people on which to draw for the new chair, particularly in instances where there's only one trustee. From there, the trustees should annually assess their knowledge, understanding and skills, and if necessary, performance appraisals should be carried out. The regulator also suggests that an annual evaluation is carried out of the performance and effectiveness of the board, with reference to the objectives set out in the scheme's business plan. Moving on to service level agreements. Schemes can also appoint advisors and service providers, like an administrator or an investment manager, meaning that their service level agreements need to be both in place and reviewed regularly to make sure that they are fit for purpose. The trustees are therefore under an obligation to check their agreements and monitor the performance of their appointed advisors and providers to ensure that they are compliant with all legislative and regulatory requirements. They must also arrange for regular reporting by any delegated parties. 
It's important to remember that trustees remain accountable regardless of the delegation of their duties. So they must retain sufficient oversight, even when delegation is to an in-house person like an HR representative. For smaller schemes, there are two possible concerns here. Firstly, delegation is expensive, so it may be impossible for a scheme to outsource these services. Equally, managing the requirements in-house can have the effect of draining a scheme's budget. But in either event, the smaller scheme risks being under-resourced by virtue of its funding. Secondly, if a scheme is able to outsource, the ongoing monitoring requirements do not change by virtue of them being a small scheme. Instead, the smaller scheme with likely smaller resources is held to the same requirements as their larger counterparts. Therefore, the regulatory burden remains regardless of their outsourcing. Trustees of occupational pension schemes also have to process core financial transactions, and we're doing so ensured that they are processed both promptly and accurately. A core financial transaction in this instance includes the investment of contributions, the transfers of assets or member payments. The trustees have to put processes in place to allow transactions to be processed promptly, and these processes should be regularly reviewed and amended where necessary to either speed up the process or take advantage of changes in technology. Contributions are to be invested within a maximum of three working days following receipt of the contributions and after completion of any reconciliation exercise. Schemes also need to put in place an integrated risk management framework to help schemes comply with the scheme funding code and manage any risks inherent in funding this type of pension scheme. Most of this guidance is contained within the regulator's 2015 guidance on the subject, but essentially, trustees should put in place an integrated risk management framework, identify risks and carry out an initial risk assessment, then carry out risk management and contingency planning. Any decisions taken in relation to this should then be recorded and the risks then monitored in an ongoing way. Where a scheme is a smaller scheme, it may not have someone who's trained in the assessment of these risks, and therefore it may require to spend more to allow assessment to take place. It is noted within the regulator's guidance on internal controls that although they recognise there may be some inherent limitations for smaller schemes due to resource and financial constraints, trustees will need to use their judgments when assessing risks and look to alternative solutions for reaching risk standards, such as sourcing or supply arrangements. They still expect smaller schemes to have formal procedures in place for managing risk. The regulator also expects trustees to review their scheme data at least once a year and have a data review process in place. They must ask their scheme administrator, if they have one, to confirm that the data is present and accurate and obtain scores for common data and scheme-specific data. For schemes that do not have a scheme administrator or cannot afford one and do not, for instance, have the practical IT facilities to maintain this data, complying with this requirement becomes all the more difficult. Trustees of schemes also require to provide a number of documents. First of all, the Statement of Investment Principles, or SIP, details the policies which control how a pension scheme invests. The SIP sets out the principles governing how decisions about investments are made and has been prepared in accordance with all relevant legislation and best practice guidelines. This must be reviewed at least every three years and without delay after any significant change in investment policy or demographic profile of members. There is no requirement for the trustees to obtain advice in connection with the default fund SIP, but they do require advice when preparing a SIP under normal requirements. 
This is therefore another advisor and another cost that schemes must take account of. Then with some exceptions, trustees of relevant schemes from October 2020 were required to include in the scheme's annual report an implementation statement, which is essentially a statement setting out the extent to which the SIP was covered and any changes to the SIP made during the year. This must be carried out before seven months after the scheme's year end. There are different requirements for DB and DC schemes. DC schemes with more than 100 members must set out the extent to which the SIP has been followed, a description of any review of the SIP, any changes, when the last review was, if no review has been carried out, and from October 2021, a description of the trustees' voting behaviour during the year. For DB schemes, the statement must confirm how and the extent to which, in the opinion of the trustees, the trustees' policy, included in the SIP, on the exercise of rights relating to scheme investments and on undertaking engagement activities, has been followed during that year. It also must cover the same description of the voting behaviours of the trustees as the DC statement. In either scheme, this is yet another document that has to be prepared and which small schemes cannot avoid if they are to meet the regulatory burden. As well as the statement of investment principles and the implementation statement, schemes are required to produce an annual chair's statement setting out certain stipulated requirements within seven months of the end of each scheme year. This includes several sections, including the latest statement on the default investment strategy and details of any review of this strategy, details of the level of charges and transaction costs applicable to each default arrangement during the scheme year and applicable in relation to each default arrangement and each fund that members were able to select and in which members are invested in during the scheme year. The trustees also need to set out how the requirements for their knowledge and understanding have been met. From October 2021, there is also a requirement for all relevant schemes to calculate the return on investments relating to each default fund. Schemes also require to include a description of how requirements for processing core financial transactions have been met, with any information about costs which the trustees or managers have not been able to obtain, with an explanation of what steps are being taken to obtain that information in the future. The charges and costs mentioned above also need to be demonstrated with an illustration of the cumulative effect over time on the value of a member's accrued rights to money purchase benefits. This statement then must also be included in the scheme's annual report and accounts. Aside from the statement of investment principles mentioned above, the trustees of pension schemes will also have involvement in investment of scheme funds. This will, of course, vary depending on the investment powers and the rules, but where the trustees have the power of investment, it's up to them to decide how to invest contributions. They must therefore decide upon a default investment strategy, which must then be reviewed periodically, as we discussed earlier in relation to the SIP and chair's statement. The regulator expects the trustees of a scheme to regularly assess how effective their investment decision-making and governance processes are, particularly in relation to their own performance as a trustee board, the implementation of an investment strategy, and the advice taken relating to setting the investment strategy and implementing decisions, as well as their understanding of the cost of delivering investment services. Schemes with more than 100 members are also expected to have and review a stewardship policy in relation to their investments. Furthermore, as a result of the Investment Consultancy and Fiduciary Management Market Investigation Order 2019, DB schemes that use fiduciary management must operate a qualifying tender process for the appointment of a fiduciary manager. 
This must be done when the trustees propose to appoint a fiduciary manager, as well as when they propose to increase the amount of assets managed by a fiduciary management provider. While this is a specific requirement, the need to procure services is an increasingly important part of best practice scheme governments and another area that small schemes may find challenging without in-house or third-party support. We also cannot forget that small schemes, regardless of their size, do still have to carry out the functions of their larger counterparts. This includes things like having a functioning internal dispute resolution procedure to deal with complaints, which can be challenging in a scheme of few members or with lower funding levels. The regulator has also indicated that they expect trustees to put controls in place in relation to the security of member data to comply with their obligations to guard against fraud and their duties under data protection legislation. On top of all of this, they have to carry out the day-to-day -day running of the scheme, dealing with member queries, dealing with contributions from employees and employers, carrying out member surveys and other member engagement activities, paying out pensions, lump sums, and more to members, etc. It's also worth bearing in mind that the duties for trustees are ever-changing and, in some cases, increasing. Under the Pension Schemes Act 2021, the bur this burden will increase, and increasingly, information must be made publicly available, leading to further scrutiny for trustees. What this, therefore, means is that there is no real exception for small schemes when it comes to fulfilling their regulatory burden under the relevant legislation. Although the pensions regulator does note that the scheme's actions must be proportionate to their size, they still require to go through the same regulatory requirements as their much larger counterparts. This, at the very least, leads to a heavy administrative burden on smaller schemes who may not be equipped or have the manpower to meet regulatory demands or to meet them on time or in the correct fashion. I'll now hand you back over to Jay and Jonathan for the question and answer session. Katie, thank you very much. That's a uh, a whistle stop tour, I suppose, but it does just show you how much there is uh, for these trustees to do. Um, thanks so much for coming on, Jonathan, to sort of help us make make sense of all of that. Um, I suppose uh, can I ask you a fairly simple but broad question? Where do you start? Well, that is a very good and important question, Jay. I mean, I think first up, you need to recognise the extent of the work that needs to be done. I mean, if you imagine trying to write this all down from on a blank piece of paper. It would be virtually impossible, even if you had all the resources in the world available. So what you need to have is a very comprehensive business plan or scheme calendar, call it what you may, which assigns all the tasks, you know, recognises what you have to do, assigns all the tasks and has the deadlines. And recognise also that this is a living document. It's going to change. I mean, in the past, we've had relatively recent things that have been that, that, that Katie discussed, things like the implementation statement or the CMA order that additional burdens and in the future we've got the the ESOG and the Aura sorry about all the acronyms but they're coming in they need to be you need to be recognized that this has to be done write it down nice and comprehensive understand who's going to do it I think the other thing just to, is to start there is to say okay what resources do we have first up just look at the trustees say who have we got on the board what can they do sometimes you might find there's a really good fit between the work they do on a day-to-day -day basis and some of the tasks that the trustees have to do scheme secretary is obviously important if you have one recognize what they can do um, and clearly your advisors 
Are you using your advisors effectively? And finally, the last thing, of course, is the employer cash, because all these things cost money. And that is a key resource. How much money have I got to spend on fulfilling these duties? A really important question to ask. Make sure that the employer understands what you need to do and you get a budget to work with. Thanks, John. No, it's an interesting thought thinking about trustees as a resource. Um, what are you looking for there when you're sort of assessing the trustees um, and what they can do? Well, I think it's probably the best to give an example. On one of the schemes I operate, um, one of my co-trustees does the internal audit for the, the business. So can bring particular skills that are very, very useful for the trustees. Now, that isn't going to be the case in every situation. Depends a lot on the nature of the employer and the nature of the work that you do and the people that are on the board. But people have skills. So recognise what they've got. Training assessments important. Recognise where they need training. If we can train people on this, how can they help us to fulfil these obligations? And crucially, do they have the time? That's a really important thing. It's not just a matter of turning up for a meeting once a quarter. There's lots of intra-meeting work that needs to be done. So make sure the trustees have the time to do the tasks that they need to do. That's interesting, yeah, I'm thinking about that time being precious for these people in their day jobs um, and, and that need for sort of the skills. Is, is this where a professional trustee helps? Well, maybe. I think it's important to recognise that there's plenty of trustee boards that operate very effectively and efficiently without a professional trustee. You don't have to have one, but they can bring experience from other schemes. They can bring procedures from other schemes and best practice. And that can be very useful to bring in the, that, that from, from elsewhere. The reality is, if you're a trustee on just one scheme, you don't have that deep well of experience to, to draw on, but a professional trustee can bring that. It might be that a sole corporate trustee could offer a solution, not in all cases, but again, something worth looking at if perhaps you're finding it difficult to get trustees or finding it difficult to free up the time. But a professional trustee isn't a panacea. And I think the most important thing you need to do is look at the budget you've got and spend that budget wisely. It may be that introducing um, a professional scheme secretary may be the best spend. Okay, that's interesting. And Katie referred to sort of the particular burden on schemes without a secretary. Is that, I mean, is the scheme secretary vital to this? How, how important is that role, do you think, Jonathan? I, I think the scheme secretary is essential. I mean, just to give you an example of how essential we think it is at Capital Cranfield, if we, if we take on a case as a sole corporate trustee, first question, is there a secretary? If there isn't a secretary, we will appoint one. That's that's just a requirement. Now, we have to recognise that the scheme secretary, it, it, it can be so varied. At one end of the spectrum, you may have a professional secretary and a pensions team. You may even have an executive underneath that secretary that makes sure all the work gets done. At the other end of the scale, you've got somebody that is effectively doing the role of the secretary. They may not think of themselves as being a scheme secretary, but they're doing the role. Now, the crucial thing here is to make sure that we can use the skills that we have. And it may be that your advisor is the person to turn to here and say, is there additional resource that you can provide for us? Because that can be a, a, a neat way of bringing in that external experience and bringing in best practice from elsewhere.
And is that where, with the extra experience you need then, is, that when, is this when you'd start maybe to look to external advice or, or, or support there for the team? Yeah, possibly. I mean, it, it may be that your administrator can provide additional resource here. Um, most administrators will provide some form of secretarial service. Do they do it for you? Is it possible if they are doing it for you? Are you using it to the greatest extent? So it's important to understand what your advisors can do for you. And crucially, if they are going to play a role in helping to fill the gaps in all your processes and procedures, you need to make sure it's written down. Everybody needs to be completely clear about what's expected of them and, of course, how much it's going to cost. Yeah, of course. And, and you started to mention there, Katie was talking about this earlier on, that one issue with the small scheme is you know, is available budget. Um, and, and how big an issue is that do you, when you see the cost of advice and the cost of these roles? How big an issue is that for your schemes? My personal view is it's it's hugely important. The reality is, you know, if, you, if you're a chair of a trustee board and you are discussing with the employer how much of their money you're going to spend, you have to be able to look them in the eye and say, I will be a good custodian of your budget. It is easy for trustees to spend money. It is very easily done. But you need to make sure that you understand how much you've got to spend, identify the, the, the key tasks and spend that budget wisely. So I've already mentioned before about the business plan and scheme calendar. I think it's vital that this is comprehensive, that you map out all the things that have to be done, your legal statutory requirements. You also map out all the things that are just good governance, all the things that help you run the scheme effectively, efficiently, and also the things that you really would want to have in terms of best practice. So then you pin down who is going to do which task and make sure that your service level agreements coincide with this, that everything stacks up. You cannot expect, you can't turn back to your advisor and say, where's my implementation statement? If you've never discussed with them in the first place, that that is something that you require for them to do. So use your budget wisely, write it all down, make sure all your agreements stack up. Thank you, Jonathan. Yeah, and I suppose we've been talking a lot about the new requirements that you, know, you mentioned, the ESOG, the, the Aura with the combined code. We've also had the whole new Pension Schemes Act uh, earlier this year. Uh, are they going to affect small schemes? Is it is it easy? Is it just the case of saying, well, this is even more burden, more regulation means more burden? Yeah, look, let's face it. The reality is there are very few dispensations for small schemes. And on one level, that's completely reasonable because a member of a small scheme, their pension is just as important as a member of a large scheme. So it's understandable that the regulator takes that approach. But I do feel the pain of trustees and employers in small schemes when you look at the additional costs. You know, the reality is the work needs to be done. So this just harking back to my previous answer, when you're looking at the, your budgets and everything that needs to be done, at least if you've mapped all that out, you can have that conversation with your employer if you're finding your budgets are constrained. You have to effectively go to them with a business plan to say, look, this is the situation we find ourselves in. You have, we have to do this. How are we going to do it? And at least if you've mapped all that out, you've got something to hang your hat on when you're having that conversation. Because without it, it's very difficult. 
especially if the the finance director um, doesn't have a great experience of of running these schemes. You know, and as we know, people change. Get a new FD in, you have to go to them and say, "This is what I need." And it it can be difficult, but you really do need to have a clear business plan. Yeah, I can see that. Now, this question I want to ask you. This is a question we ask every time a new large piece of pension legislation comes out. But you know, is the is the Twenty One Act is the combined code going to be a driver towards consolidation in the DB space? Perhaps in the same way we're anticipating in the DC space. Well, I think the simple answer is yes. Um, it will drive employers and trustees to consider consolidation. How much will actually happen in practice is is another matter. Um, it can be very, very disconcerting to be that, you know, trailblazers and things like this, sticking your head above the parapet and saying, yes, we want to do it. Are small schemes really well placed to do that? It, it, it's difficult. Um, so. There, there is some hope in that there's there's a lot of momentum behind um, scheme mergers in the DC sector. And I think the presence of authorised master trusts is making that easier. If we had something similar in the DB side, where there was effectively an assumption that, yes, a transfer from here to this authorised consolidation vehicle is, you know, that is just seen as a good thing. And we could perhaps circumvent a lot of the additional cost around the selection and the appropriate, you know, and the due diligence on on that consolidation vehicle, then maybe we'll start to see that happen. But the reality is, I find that most things in DB can get complicated pretty quickly. If you think about corporate restructures, mergers, flexible apportionment arrangements, they all have legal complexities. They very quickly become tricky and therefore become expensive. So for there to be any meaningful consolidation of the many thousands of very small schemes, and just harking back to Katie's point about 250 million, there's many, many schemes that are just in a few million, you know, sub 10 million pounds. To see that, I think we will need to see additional support from the regulator and the industry to make that consolidation really happen. Thanks, Jonathan. No, I, th I think that's a, a sensible viewpoint on, on consolidation there. Um, just finally, then, while we've got to you, what are your what are your top tips? How do we distill this down? What 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 are your top tips for trustees, a small scheme, to try and navigate this? I've only really got one top tip I want to share with you, and that is your fiduciary duty is your friend. Okay, the beauty of fiduciary duty is it makes it absolutely clear what you as a trustee have to do, and that. The reason I call it your friend is that it makes the questions easy. What do I have to do? The answer just comes to you. I have to act in the best interest of the members. That is really useful when you're having difficult conversations. If I'm sitting talking to a finance director, the reality is our conversation may get awkward because I'm looking to spend their money and they've got other ideas how they want to spend that money. The finance director has their own responsibility to the shareholders of, this, of the business. I have my responsibility to the members. If we switch those roles round, the responsibilities wouldn't change. You know, this isn't personal. This is about the legal duty that we as trustees have to have to carry out. So, fiduciary duty is your friend. You have to do these things. There isn't really any choice, and I think that makes it simpler. So, just understand your responsibilities. 
get them written down and have a business plan. And that gives you what you need to have those conversations with your employer. Thank you, Jonathan. That's, that's really helpful. No easy answer, but a, you know, a helpful way through for, for trustees that when they start to pick, you know, pick up all these documents and things they've got to start working with. That's really helpful. Yeah. Thank you. Well, so thank you. Thank you everyone for joining us and thanks you to Katie Becker for taking us through the regulatory burden at the start. And again, thank you to Jonathan Reynolds from Capital Granfield uh, for giving us the trustee perspective and really uh, putting that into practice for us. Uh, our next law cast is on transfers. You'll notice we didn't talk much about transfers this time. Another big part of regulatory burden uh, that's changing now for trustees. So do join us next time when we're going to start tackling the transfers and the new requirements in relation to pension scams that are coming into force imminently there.